Welcome, my name is Anthony and I happen to have the honor and privilege of uh, being here with you this morning and opening the scriptures together with you, which uh, I gotta say I am crazy, crazy excited about. Um, and uh, if you've been around for the last several weeks, you would know that, uh, uh, or at least online anyways, you would know that we've been working our way through this series that we've titled Hope Fully. A uh, little play on words there, thinking about the uh, biblical theme, idea, concept of uh, hope, um, as it's mentioned throughout the scriptures and especially in Jesus' teaching. And so uh, we're in part seven of this series, and today we're going to be thinking about hope for the exile. Uh, we're going to be in First Peter 1, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there and bookmark it. If uh, you don't have one, there might be one scattered around underneath some of the chairs. You can feel free to grab one of those, and if you don't own one, you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, but First Peter 1 is where we're going to be, and thinking about um, this idea of hope uh, for the exile, which is, uh, I'll let you in, uh, for me, I think one of the coolest themes and concepts throughout the scripture that I think is often forgotten or just minimized or just not just not even seen for the most part. Um, but as I've uh, studied and thought through this concept over the last couple of years, I've found it tremendously insightful. A couple of years ago, we did a whole series through the book of Daniel, and uh, it was called Exiles. And we, we talked through like how Daniel was in exile in Babylon um, hundreds of years before Jesus stepped onto the scene. And it was, uh, for me, like just a, a ton of fun to preach through and learn um, because there's so much going on in that book, but also what it means or meant really for, for Daniel to be um, what some authors have uh, deemed him as the wisdom warrior. In fact, uh, if you're interested at all in reading up more on this, Daniel Smith Christopher wrote a book called uh, Biblic Theology of Exile. Absolutely brilliant. Um, he walks through this entire theme, uh, which is really where most of my content today is coming from, kind of a, a summary of all of it. Um, but specifically getting at Daniel and uh, him being a wisdom warrior, which is living in a time and in a place where if you're not familiar with the story of Daniel, he's this guy who's been taken captive, but ends up being uh, within like the courts of the, of the king. And uh, he, he just lives this uh, amazing life of wisdom where uh, you, you often like see the choices that he makes and ask yourself like, why would he say okay to this and not okay to this? Um, and, and how it is that he is able to bring the kingdom of God in the midst of what would be a, obviously a terrible circumstance there in Babylon, again, hundreds of years before Jesus. But anyways, um, that to the side, because uh, we're not gonna spend much time there with Daniel. But uh, I'm gonna read through First Peter 1. Uh, verses 1 through 12, and then uh, I'll pray, and we'll have a little bit of outline. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Wowza. I don't know if any of you have written three paragraphs quite like that before, but that is, there's a lot going on in there. We're not going to tackle all of it in detail. We're just going to kind of gloss over the idea of what it means to be in exile um, and kind of hit some, some major points. So let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll dig in. Father, thank you for time together this morning. Thank you for um, a place to gather. Thank you for, uh, for safety and security and for comfort and all of these things that are well above and beyond what we deserve. And um, thank you for community. Thank you for the ways in which you've provided for us to be able to have this community even over the last uh, couple months, even online. And uh, how even right now we're able to have a community virtually. We're, we're grateful that you keep on providing for us and just plead with you that you would help us to not take this moment for granted. Whether that's watching virtually or here in the building, that's me being able to open the scriptures with these, what I consider to be family members, um, to be able to sing, to be able to have communion. God, help us to acknowledge that these are all tremendous blessings and uh, to really take advantage of them. Um, bless our, our time in the scriptures, our time in communion, our time in singing in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So I want to think with you uh, about this, um, this idea of hope for the exile and uh, really through this passage under, under two headings. Uh, the first is really just what it means to be exiled. Um, and we're going to spend the majority of our time there. And then the second is how to have hope um, in light of such or uh, having hope in light of being an exile. But that really won't make sense until we really understand what it means to be an exile. So when we talk about what it means to be an exile, I think uh, it's pretty important for us to maybe tear away or get rid of or dispel some maybe false ideas, conceptions that we might have. Because I think for us, like, as, as Westerners, you know, as Americans, like, when somebody says exile and that person's in exile, I wouldn't be surprised if like our, our first reaction or what comes to mind is you know, a person fleeing from, from another country, another nation, because there's uh, difficulty, there's war, maybe even famine, and so they flee from there, and now they're in this other place, and they're in exile. And although that's true, when Peter here is speaking as a first century Jew to an audience of, of first century Gentiles, for the most part, but probably mixed in with, with Jews, he's got like a whole story in mind. So for us, like, that would just be a, a minimization of it. And I think we probably do this in a couple ways, which is uh, when a person goes from one place to another, we might think uh, like a tourist, you know, uh, a person who goes into another place and they go there primarily to experience things. So they're an outsider. So they're, they're walking around, they're taking pictures, they're going to restaurants, they're, you know, going to theater, they're doing things in different places, but it's really pr primarily to get something for themselves. Uh, and you, you notice these people, right? If you've ever been to a different place and you are the tourist, like, you know full well you're the tourist, right? And you, you can sense, like, I'm the weirdo taking all the pictures and I'm the weirdo asking all the questions and you're, you're out of place, right? I remember this when uh, Nichelle and I 
on our honeymoon, we went to New York City, uh, born and raised in San Diego. So we didn't realize that we were going to live two and a half hours away from New York City. Otherwise, we wouldn't have spent our honeymoon in New York City because we've been there many times since. But when we first went there, um, I remember walking around and, and noticing that those people are tourists, even though I was the tourist, but I knew because my own actions, right? So you're, you're out of place. It, you, you don't understand like all of the culture. You don't understand all of the experiences. You, you speak a different language. You have different values. You, like in New York City, for instance, right? You probably don't even own a car. You don't have insurance. You don't have to pay for gasoline. Your, your grocery store is probably a block away. Like it's just a completely different world, right? And so when you're a tourist, it's, it's almost like you don't belong, but also you're using the city really kind of for your own personal experience. You're, you're going there to get something for yourself. And that's not necessarily wrong. Being a tourist is fun. I don't think God has anything opposed to it. But that's not really what it means to be in exile. To just be visiting something to get something for yourself is not everything that I think Peter has in mind here. Nor do I think on the other side of the spectrum that he's talking about being sort of naively assimilated. And what I mean by that is subscribing to absolutely everything that that culture and that value system is putting forth, right? So for us, if you're born, like for everybody really, you're born into a culture. As you're born into that culture, you're born into a value system. That's what cultures are. Cultures are saying, here's what's valuable to us. So we want you to subscribe to these particular values and therefore live in these particular ways, right? So you're born into some kind of society where they say, here's what's important. And they lay it out before you, and even subconsciously, you just give yourself to that thing. Sometimes what societies put forth in terms of values are good. Sometimes they're not good. And when you're born into it, you don't really realize because subconsciously, you just take on that value system, right? So for instance, for us as Americans, like there's some things that are really good about the American economy, but then there's also some things that maybe lend opportunity for greed and for corruption. Right? So the idea of, of uh, challenging one another and growing and pushing each other, spurring each other on to creativity and growth, like that's a great thing about capitalism. But there's also the opportunity to seize it and use it for personal gain and even oppress other people. In our society, there's a number of ways we could speak to this, right? Uh, the democratic republic in which we live, the ability to vote is an awesome, awesome thing. But those who are in power sometimes are able to hold that power for extended periods of time and use it for their own personal gain as well. So you got this like give and take within different societies, right? Where you, there's value systems put forth and to, to think through like what is really good about this value system, what is not good about this culture is, is extremely important. And I think that's part of what Peter would be getting at us. So it's not simply being a tourist where you're taking everything for your own personal gain and you're kind of Unknown, like you don't really know the culture, you're not really assimilated, but it's also not being fully assimilated. To be fully assimilated was, would be to subscribe to whatever the powers that be are saying. So what does it actually mean to be in exile? And I wanna, I wanna hit this on a few different levels. I think as Peter's speaking here, again, as a first century Jew, when he says exile and you're the elect exiles, I think he's got a few things going on in his mind. I think that first of all, it just has to do with the human condition. Now he's talking to Jesus' followers, so we'll talk specifically to that, but I think there's also just being a human in this broken and fallen world is us being exiles. 
So here's what I mean. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a really brilliant book called Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, totally pick it up. I mentioned last week he wrote Screwtape Letters, but in Mere Christianity, he has this amazing quote. It's a little lengthy, but I want to read it for you, and it has to do, I think, with the human condition that all of us experience, Jesus followers and not. Here's what he says. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures, he carries on, were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. See, what C.S. Lewis is getting at here is the reality that I think we all know deep down, that this world, even though it has amazing blessings and goodness and things that we can experience that are, you know, really, really like help our souls go, yes, this is what it means to be human, to truly be alive. They're fleeting. They don't last forever. And what he's saying is that that in itself should let us know that there must be something that finally will quench that thirst, that desire, right? I think we know this on a, on a number of levels. Um, I think even just psychologically or spiritually even, like in our own minds and bodies, right? We experience this kind of brokenness within us where deep, deep down, I'll bet every single one of us has this like great desire to be the person that we were meant to be, made to be, right? Where, where we actually and actively love the people around us with all of our being, you know, where, where we're the best spouse that we could be. I think we all want to be the best spouse that we could be. We all want to be the best parent that we could be. We all want to be the best friend that we can be, and yet we're not. And something happens in there where you're like, why can't I just be the person that deep, deep down I really want to be and that everybody around me wants to be? Like, what's going on inside of me? Paul speaks to this in Romans 7. He says, this is one of the most brilliant passages in all the New Testament, I love it. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's interesting, Paul is so, he's so real, he's so transparent. I mean, isn't this like, this is like life verse kind of stuff. You know, we usually write down, you know, like, uh, you know, God gives strength to those who are weak and we, you know, cross stitch it into pillows. But nobody writes this and puts it in their bathroom. Like, I do the things that I don't want to do. That's my life verse. <laughs> but this is what Paul says. Like, he's just so transparent about the reality of the brokenness within us. So even, 
even here, what we find C.S. Lewis was saying about living in a world where we long for something more, it's even within us, but it's also without, right? In the world in which we live. I mean, gosh, you guys, I'm sure all of you are aware of what's happening in Minneapolis and now because of that really all over the United States and the situation in which we live and how separated society is simply because of the color of people's skin. Like, that is just, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking to think that we could look at another human being and consider them less than human. And for whatever reason, it could be the color of skin, it because they have less education or more education, it because they have less money or more money, but the fact that we do this as human beings is a sign that this, this can't be it. This can't be it. Like when you look out at riots and you see like people being mistreated, you, something inside of every single one of us aches for this to be gone, for this to be done away with, for us to have peace, for there not to be war, for there not to be violence, for there not to be racism, for there not to be classism. We all ache, I think, deep down for this, but it's missing. So what is going on, right? Well, I think what Peter is getting at here is that what it means to be in exile is to live in the brokenness and yet do something about it. And this is really what I think the entire story of God is all about. Uh, when you think about what it means to be human outside of the garden, um, and we'll track this story, what it means is to constantly be doing our best to bring the garden back. And by that, I mean the Garden of Eden. If you tra trace back to the beginning of the story of God, what he does in the midst of formlessness and void, you recall in Genesis 1.1, what he does is his spirit hovering over, he speaks and he brings forth light, he brings forth order, he brings forth goodness. Like that's what God does, that's what God is about. He creates this garden and he places humanity inside of it and he calls them to exercise dominion, which is to bring goodness and to bring beauty out of that which is there. He enters into it with them and they're dwelling together. Like this is God's ideal, right? This is the beginning. This is what God hopes for humanity and for himself in relationship with to them and all of creation. Like this is God's plan, his hope, his desire. But sadly, when the serpent comes in and tempts, which is all about God's goodness, it's all about it, God, God's giving you everything, but what about this? Like certainly, God's not good because he would have given you this too, right? When they, when they give in to that temptation and they eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens is exile. Now, God said the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, but they didn't drop dead. What happened was exile. You read it in Genesis 3. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. And hold on to that word because it's critical. It's traced all throughout the Old Testament. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what we have here is exile from the garden, from goodness, beauty, order. God takes them out. And the reason they have to go out is because now they have this sin within them. They, they can't stay there. It wouldn't be good for them to eat of the tree of life in that situation because now they would remain in this terrible state. So God drives them out and he drives them out east of Eden. This is for their own good. This is actually an act of mercy by God. Now, when this happens and humanity finds themselves in this place, they're separated from that good order. Not necessarily separated from God entirely as he chases after them and he continues to, to pursue them throughout the entire story, but, but they find themselves separated from the goodness and beauty and order of what God had initially created. In other words, they're in exile. That's part of what this means, right? 
if you read through the rest of the story of the Old Testament, you find this over and over and over again as just the situation in which humanity resides. We reside in a broken world, but God is constantly trying to fix it. And so the very next story after Adam and Eve, if you're reading through Genesis, you get to chapter four. Their sons, Cain and Abel, is almost like a, it's like a reiteration of the exact same story in Genesis 3, where there's this serpent who's tempting. Now, God says that, there's, that, that sin is crouching at the door, seeking to destroy you, to devour you, he says to Cain, as he's jealous of his brother Abel. This is, this is like what the author is doing is he's saying, just like in Genesis 3, now you get in Genesis 4. In other words, I'm going to tell you this story over and over again so that you can understand the situation in which humanity is. Now, in Genesis 4, after Cain kills Abel, it says, Behold, you've driven me today, this is Cain speaking, away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. In other words, I'm in exile. So the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Notice the mercy of God on this man. So then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. See, the author here is trying to, he's trying to get our minds thinking about the reality of what sin does when we give in to temptation uh, whether it's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as Adam and Eve, or whether it's Cain being jealous and killing his brother, what happens is we put ourselves into exile. But God doesn't leave Adam and Eve, and God doesn't leave Cain. Notice this. God actually protects them. God's the one who covers Adam and Eve. God's the one who, who protects Cain in this. God is constantly in pursuit. But then, as the story carries on, you probably know the story of Noah. I'm not going to read any of that, but man, you want to talk about exile. I mean, come on, that is exile in its ultimate form, being trapped on a boat with a bunch of animals and eight people in your family who apparently he doesn't even like, and they don't like him either, as you read on in the story, and then all you have is water around you. I mean, that is exile. But after that story, what you find is humanity, again, just spiraling out of control, just spiraling out of control. And there's this story about uh, the Tower of Babel that you might be familiar with, where humanity comes together and they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be like God. And so they decide to build this tower. And in building of this tower, what they're trying to do is say, we can, we can be like God. But as this happens in Genesis 11, here's how it ends. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Notice this. Like, when God speaks of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, lest they be like us. And he's talking about God. Here's what, exactly what they're trying to do. He says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over there, I'm sorry, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, this might sound like God's judgment, but it's actually, again, God's mercy. If God had let them do this, what would have happened? Well, they would have thought that they were like God. And that would have ruined everything. They would have continued down the spiral. And sadly, even though he does disperse them, that's the way the story goes. As the story goes beyond this, God calls in Genesis 12 this man named Abram. It later changes his name to Abraham. And he says to this man, he's got this covenant for him. He says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're, 
your people are going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world, is what he says to Abraham. This is the same covenant that he made with Noah and that he made with Adam. He wants him to be fruitful and multiply and be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Now, this guy Abraham, he's got tons of weaknesses and failures. If you read through his story, this is like a huge summary of Genesis 15 all the way through 50. So I'm going to be really quick. But he he has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, later known as the the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, One of the sons, Jacob, uh, ends up getting sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. Uh, These people end up in famine. I hope you're still tracking with me. They get into Egypt in order to to find food. They flourish there. This is, again, all of the rest of Genesis. As they're flourishing there, though, a new pharaoh or king takes control. And when this new pharaoh king takes control, he begins to oppress the Israelites. These Israelites who were brought into, sorry, who were brought into the land by Abraham to be a blessing are now in a place where they're under oppression or a place of exile, really. And in this place, they're incapable of fulfilling all of what God had in store for them. So what is God going to do in the midst of this? Well, when they're in the midst of exile, what God is going to do is he's going to do everything that he said, which is to make humanity into a blessing to all the nations of the world. So so he takes these people and he brings them out by way of Moses, right? Now, when when they get out and they cross through the Red Sea, they end up in the wilderness and they're wandering in the wilderness or another form of exile. For 40 years they're in this place, not trusting God. They cry about not having water. They cry about not having food. They cry about a whole bunch of stuff. Moses gets really irritated, hits a rock, and in doing so, is told by God that he's not going to lead them into the promised land, and instead Joshua will. So he raises up this guy, Joshua. Joshua takes the Israelites. Are you also with me? Okay, this is like world history 101 right here. So, so he takes the, takes the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. And God had said multiple times to the Israelites, to Moses, to Joshua, that it's there in that land that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it's the garden. Like God's taken them back. And as God does this, he gives them a law. And why would he do that? Well, because he understands the parameters through which people need to abide in order for them to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Just as he did in the garden, he said you can eat of anything except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's a law. So he does now in the promised land, the same thing. So as these exiles, he brings them into the land so they can fulfill everything that he said to Abraham, that he will be a father of a great nation that will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Now here's what's really sad. If you've read through 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, they're in the land and uh, they're not very good at doing what God said that he wanted them to do. They don't abide by the law at all. In fact, they become very much like Pharaoh. They become Egypt in a sense, right? After the first great king, David, who also was a mess, you get Solomon, who also was a mess, and then you get king after king after king after king who are messes. You get priests who are also messes, and then you get these prophets. And if you read through the prophets, you're gonna notice that they speak constantly about how it is that these kings are oppressive, and oppressive in the same way that Pharaoh was in Egypt. They're taking advantage of the marginalized and the poor, and they're using them for their own personal gain. And as these prophets are speaking, do you notice what they say? They say over and over again, if you keep acting this way, the land is going to spit you out. Like that phrase is used over and over again. Why that phrase, the land is going to spit you out, that sounds really weird, right? Well, because it's garden language. I brought you into the promised land, and if you keep acting this way, you're not acting in the good order and beauty of God, and you're not bringing in all of what it is that he had in store. So he's going to 
the land itself is going to exile them. Sadly, they don't turn, and the land does exile them. The Babylonians come in, they take them captive. They go into Babylonian exile. And it's there in that exile, though, that God, God doesn't turn away from them. Like, read through Isaiah, read through Ezekiel. Like, what God does in, throughout their exile in Babylon is he's constantly talking to them about how it is that he wants to take them back to the land. He's constantly saying, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. I will provide an opportunity for you to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar had torn down, I'm going to get you back into that place. Well, why? Because Again, garden language. Like he wants, this is the place of goodness and beauty where they can be everything that God intended them to be. So you read through these prophets and they're, they're constantly speaking of taking them back to the land, back to the land, back to the land. They, they finally get back to the land, right? So you read through Ezra and Nehemiah. They get back to the land. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. And then what happens? Oh, sadly. You get the 400 years of silence, but what we know from history is the Babylonians were taken over by the Greeks, the Greeks were taken over by the Romans. When you get to Jesus' time, you've got the Romans now occupying Jerusalem. The land that was flowing with milk and honey that was to be the place that was like the garden, that was good and beautiful, to be a blessing to all the nations of the world is now occupied by the Romans who are completely corrupt and sadly, the leaders of the Jewish people begin to cooperate with them. The priests cooperate with them. The temple is messed up. It's, it's, it's mixed in with Rome and their priorities and their value system. And so these people who are supposed to be exiles living in sort of a different kingdom, yet in that place, are now all corrupt. And when they're all corrupt, what's going to happen? Well, God sends this prophet. The prophet's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist gets on the scene. And he begins to say, turn away. Turn away from your wicked ways. In other words, there, there's a different way. He says, repent, turn away. Now, when he does this, it's really interesting because it's in the Jordan River. In the Jordan River is what they cross to get into the land. Here they are in the land. They have the land, but they're not acting like the, the land was meant to be taken care of. They're, they're not taking care of each other in that land. So when John's doing this, it's, it's extremely symbolic. Like the, the, any Jew going out to the Jordan to be baptized, to turn a different way, to then go back to their own home in Jerusalem, which they already occupied, it's not like God needs to take them back to a new land. That's not the case with John the Baptist. What he's taking them back to is a new way. He's taking them to a new kingdom. And that kingdom doesn't have to do necessarily just with the land. So John's calling them to subscribe, not just to what the land offers, but what God wants for them. So John's calling them into this, and Jesus goes out there. And Jesus is baptized. Why? Because any king taking over a kingship is supposed to be baptized by the high priest or the prophet at the time. Do you see this in 1st, 2nd Samuel? Jesus is baptized by John, and immediately what happens? The father speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity, going through the Jordan and into a new land. And isn't it just awesome that what he does right after is he's driven by Satan into the wilderness, and in that wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, obviously symbolic of the 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites had, Jesus is tempted, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden, but Jesus overcomes. 
in this, what we find is Jesus is starting a new humanity of exiles living on the whole planet. This is what the kingdom of God is about. Not just Jerusalem, but the whole thing. The whole thing he is saying, I'm starting something fresh. I'm starting something new. And this is what I think Peter is getting at here. You're like, were we ever going to get to Peter? <laughs> Peter here, I think, describes for us exactly what it means to be in exile. And I think he uses these three terms that build on each other. Notice with me in 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ in the sprinkling with his blood. That obedience, I think, ties two together. But notice, elect, sanctified, and sprinkled with his blood. These all kind of build upon each other. They're interesting words. Um, and I'm sure Peter had much going on in his mind as he addresses them as exiles in this way. Notice this first, having to be elect. Uh, for, for Peter, this is probably a lot more complex than maybe the way we think about elect. So when somebody says to you, uh, that person's elect or elected, right? We probably immediately go to the idea of voting and you know, putting that person in that position. So we go to the booths, we vote, that person takes on that position. So the president-elect is the person who's now in that position. And sadly, I mean, even though that's true, that's a minimization of what it really means, right? Because to take on that position or to be in that place is also to have purpose, right? The person who's elected to that position is not just now titled that thing, they actually have something to do. That's the reason why they're called that thing. It's not just a title, there's a purpose. So think of it, for instance, like this, right? If you get married, and now you call yourself a husband or a wife, that's fantastic. You've got the stamp, right? The thing's filled out, you get the license. That's true, you are a husband or a wife. But it's just a title. If you start living in such a way that you're not a husband or a wife, which would be contrary to the vows that you made that made you the husband or wife in that ceremony, you're not actually a husband or a wife. You might be called it, but you're not actually it. Or think about a parent, right? And maybe some of us grew up in a house like this, or sadly, I know for myself, I often think about how I fail at being a father. Like to have that stamp to say, you're a father, is an amazing and tremendous blessing and opportunity. But just to be called a father doesn't mean that you are a father right? You can fail tremendously at spending time and energy and resource providing safety, security, comfort for your kids, but sure, you're their dad, but are you really? You get what I'm saying, right? Same with mothers, the same even with friends. You say, oh, they're my friend. Are they really? Is it just something that we, we just say, or is it true in the way that we act with each other, right? So when when Peter here, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody, if anything like this hurts me tremendously, um, when Peter here speaks of the elect, he's not just talking about a group of people who call themselves Israelites. In fact, you'll notice that Paul speaks to this a ton in the New Testament, about those who just call themselves of the family of Abraham are not necessarily of the family of Abraham. He's making a distinction. Just because you're born into it doesn't mean that you actually are it. What he's saying here by elect is that there's a purpose involved. It's not just that you get the the title of being that, but there's a purpose involved. And he builds on this, um, uh, I think, stemming from Deuteronomy 7. Notice this, um, as well as Exodus 19. 
For you are a people, this is what God says in Deuteronomy, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy, this is like set apart. The Lord your God has chosen or elected you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, what is that really all about? Why would, why would he elect these people just so they can go, we're special? No, of course not. There's purpose involved. If you go to Exodus 19, here's what it is. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, they've experienced something with God. They've got some knowledge of who he is and what he's like that sets them apart. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me. Notice this. This is why they're chosen. There's a reason behind it. They're not just like special and they get to feel all, you know, warm and cuzzy about God loving them. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, they're set apart for a purpose. To be the priests is to be the people who bring others to God. That's what a priest does. There's a whole nation that God has elected to be a part of doing this thing. So this is what Peter has going on in his mind. But beyond this, it's this special purpose that I just mentioned, to bring people to God. He mentions being sanctified. This idea, he says in 2a of uh, chapter 1, according to the knowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Um, any of you guys use the word sanctification, sanctified, sanctify, and this last week? Probably not. <laughs> we don't use this word regularly. Um, this is a really like churchy Christian kind of Bible word, right? And this word I think is, is actually piling on top of, like I said, this idea of what it means to be elected. The idea of being sanctified is to be set apart for a particular purpose or something that is special and able to accomplish something that something else can't, okay? So here's what I mean by that. Do you ever, um, when, when you were growing up, maybe your mom, your grandmother, or, uh, you know, uh, friends, family members, something like that, you'd visit their house and there'd be like this uh, table right, in, in the dining room that had uh, a tablecloth on it, had a piece of glass on it, then it had a piece of plastic on it, and then it also had placemats on it. Any of you have been around one of these? Okay, I, I totally remember this in my friend's house. And I was thinking, nobody's ever going to see that table. Like, what's the point? It could just be like two by fours and like a plank. Like, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> but the thing is covered and covered and covered. And then you ask, like, when are we ever going to use this table? And she's like, only on Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, or that china that's right next to it. When are we going to use that? Only on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And like, these things are set apart. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, they're set apart on purpose. They're special. They're used for those special occasions. When you read through the Old Testament, notice this in Numbers 7. On that day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and he had anointed and consecrated or set apart it with all its furnishings, and it anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils. Notice this, utensils are sanctified. Furniture is sanctified. You're like, what? I th like, what makes furniture or utensils so special that you would call it sanctified or consecrated? Like, that's odd, right? Well, what's different about these utensils than other utensils? I mean, if you make one gold spoon and one gold spoon, what's the difference? Well, you put this one in the altar and you start using this one for sacred things. So the difference isn't intrinsic in itself. They're both gold spoons. 
This one is used for special things, and otherwise, it has the opportunity or the ability to do something that this spoon can't do, right? So this thing being sanctified is saying, it has ability, it has power to do something. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, you're elect, you've been set apart, and you have ability or power to do something that is extraordinary. And as he carries on with this, he says, and sprinkled with his blood. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. What a weird thing to say to people. (laughs) I mean, these are Gentiles too. So like the idea of being sprinkled with blood. I mean, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 21, almost 22, I think. And I read stuff like this and I go, that's disgusting. Like, what, what, what is all this weird language about blood all of the time in the New Testament and being sprinkled with it? Like, I don't want to, I don't identify myself as having been sprinkled with blood. Have you guys ever identified yourself as having been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? Like, I get, like, you might say that you're sanctified. You might say that you're elect. But I've never heard a Christian say to me, I've been sprinkled with the blood. Like, that's weird. It's really weird. Why would he do this? And the reason is because, again, as a first century Jew, Peter's got a whole story in mind about what he means here. So to be elect, to be sanctified, now he's building on that or making it more clear as to what it means to be in exile. This idea actually stems from the covenant that was made in Exodus. Notice with me in Exodus 24. So Moses took half of the blood, he put it in the basins. This is after he had slaughtered some animals. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, very important language, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Remember that word that was used in 1 Peter 1, obedient to the sprinkling of the blood. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people. Could you only imagine being a part of that ceremony? What is going on here? He threw it on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. See, what's going on here in Exodus is after God takes the people out of exile in Egypt and he brings them closer to the promised land, he makes a covenant with them and part of that covenant is the sprinkling of the blood on them. As exiles, in other words, they now are finding themselves under a different kingship than Pharaoh. They're finding themselves under the kingship of God. And as they find themselves under the kingship of God, they are sprinkled with the blood. So so a new covenant is formed. They're no longer in the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. They're set free. They've got a new king for a new kingdom. He's about to take them into this land so they can live as the people he's intended them to be. What Peter's doing here is really remarkable. He's saying that to be an exile is to be elect, to be brought into a new place, but to be sanctified. You have particular opportunity and ability, but the only way you can do that is if you see Jesus as king. In other words, we live in a kingdom. We live in the kingdoms of the world. We live in places where power is corrupted, where there's brokenness, where there's difficulty, where there's trial. And there are kings in places of power who seek to use that power to oppress, to bring more brokenness, to bring more difficulty, to maybe even keep those trials going. We live in a world where that is just the reality. I'm not pointing any fingers at any particular individual or group of people at all, 
but simply to say that what Peter is saying here is that whatever kingdom of the world you're in, you're not ultimately in that kingdom. You're ultimately in the kingdom of God. Your covenant is not ultimately to the powers that be. Your covenant is ultimately to Christ. And so whenever something comes against that covenant and what it means to bring beauty and goodness and peace into the world, which is his covenant, don't give in to the other kingdom. The kingdom that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy is the kingdom of Satan. That's what he's come to do, but he has come to give life and give it abundantly. The kingdom of Christ is the kingdom in which we live. That's what he's saying here. You've been sprinkled with the blood. You have an amazing opportunity so long as you abide in the things of Christ, which is love and peace. Now, with that in mind, Jesus, uh, he clarifies this in Luke 22 as he's in the upper room. He took the bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten and he said this, this is the cup poured out for you which is the new covenant in my blood. See, all Peter's doing is stealing the words from Jesus who's stealing the words from God in, you know, in Exodus speaking to Moses. Jesus is saying there's a new covenant and I'm your king. Now, I don't think I have time actually to get even into the second point. I wasn't expecting it to take that long. Um, But the next several verses I would commend to you. There's something that Peter is giving to us, not just in who we are and what we have the ability for, but also how it is that we can live in this world. He speaks about knowing heaven, for instance. Right after this, he says, there is something for you that is unperishable, undefiled, that is kept in heaven and guarded by God for you. And he says, this is your hope. And he says, it's a living hope because you've been born again. This language is Jesus speaking in John 3 to Nicodemus, right? He says, you must be born again. But he's actually stealing it from Ezekiel who prophesied during the Babylonian exile to the Valley of Dry Bones. You guys remember that story where where God takes him out, he has this vision of dry bones and he says, speak to the bones and have them come alive. And they come alive. And it's right after this actually that I would love to read for you, just no time. He he says, after he brings them to life, he's gonna take them into the land. Like that's the prophecy of Ezekiel, not just life, but what is life without the land? He says he's gonna take him into it. When Jesus says this to Nicodemus, he certainly knew this was the case. When Peter says, you've been born again to a living hope, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about being a part of this amazing opportunity. But not only that, he speaks about how it is also that in the midst of this exile, like we're gonna face trials and tribulations and difficulty, but he also speaks to how these things are going to mold us and shape us and form us into the best exiles that we can be. Again, thinking about Daniel, who was, who was able to, to be named something different. Like he's given this Babylonian name, and he's like, all right, that's cool, I'll just abide by that. And then Nebuchadnezzar's like, you have to eat this, and he's like, nope, that's where I draw the line. And you're like, why? Why you take the name, but you won't eat the food? Wisdom warrior what's going on here, man. He's in exile, understanding the place in which he's living. So when we go through trials, as Peter says, we have the ability and the power to actually live well within them, right? So I would commend to you the rest of 1 Peter 1, but know this, and we in the midst of this exile, we have a better king. We have a great king, a king who's died for us and who is alive right now in this moment, who's given to us his spirit so that we might be able to live well in this world and bring his kingdom. And so friends, don't, don't diminish the opportunity that you have or the ability that you have 
in any time, place, season. The spirit of God in you that raised Jesus from the dead has given you new life. That means for your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors. It means in this world, the created order, we have ability. We have power. Know that today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the time that you've given to us in the scriptures. Thank you for uh, the opportunity that we now have to sing and to partake of communion. I just plead with you that you would help us to know that your spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and we are alive in you. That we have great ability and opportunity. So help us to not take it for granted. Help us to not forsake it. Help us to walk in it. In Christ's name, amen.